chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, concludes a paragraph that began in verse 13. In verse 13, the Apostle Peter told us the unlikelihood that serious persecution would come to most Christians. But he immediately followed that in verse 14 by telling us that there is the possibility of such persecution. And that possibility applies to any and all believers, and therefore we ought to be ready. And that's why he tells us in the last part of verse 14 that we should not fear persecutors should they arise in our life. And he does that by quoting a text in Isaiah 8 and verse 12. And launching from that text, he then declares in verse 15 that the alternative to fear is to enthrone Jesus Christ as Lord in your heart. If you will enthrone Christ as Lord in your heart, then you will have no reason to fear, no matter what comes your way. And he follows that in verse 15 by telling us that we must also always be prepared to explain our faith to anyone who asks us. Now we come to our text for today in verses 16 and 17, which continues that theme of suffering for Christ. And Peter proposes three additional aspects for bolstering our spiritual courage. These are also further insights into what it means to enthrone Christ on our heart, or in our heart as Lord. We might say that this is a development of what it means to enthrone Christ in your heart. And so what we have before us in our text today is three steps to develop spiritual courage. Three steps to develop spiritual courage, or three steps to enthroning Christ in your heart. And what are they? Number one, maintain a good conscience. Number two, embrace God's promise of final victory. And number three, submit fully to God's sovereign rule. Three steps to develop spiritual courage. And the first one is to obtain and maintain a good conscience before God. Verse 16 says, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if the will of God, or if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Having a good conscience, a good conscience, an agathos conscience. Most of us are aware that we have a conscience. Most of us understand something of the importance of the conscience which we possess, and as Christians we understand that it has been given to us by God. And yet I think most of us would also confess that we don't understand a great deal about that conscience, exactly what it is and how it operates. We know it's there, we know it's important, and beyond that we don't know a great deal. And yet Peter is telling us that our conscience in many ways is vital to good spiritual health and is one of the keys to possessing spiritual courage. And that makes it very important, doesn't it? So what is the conscience? The conscience could be defined as the soul reflecting upon itself. 
both in the Greek and the English, the word conscience and the Greek equivalent has the idea of to know yourself. The conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself. Beyond that, we understand that it is that internal mechanism that evaluates human behavior. Something that is within us, something that we understand has been given to us by God, created by God within human beings, and it is something that evaluates human behavior, tells us whether it is good or bad, whether it is righteous or sinful. Paul said this about the conscience in Romans 2.15, when he said of Gentiles who don't even have the law of God, he said, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Even those who don't have the written word of God, the law of God in that sense, nevertheless have, according to this text, within their mind, written within their heart, they have some knowledge of the law of God, not a full knowledge, not a perfect knowledge, but some knowledge of the law of God that has been given to them by God. And then they have some inward mechanism that evaluates their conduct against that standard of the law which they have, and that that uh, mechanism will either accuse or excuse them. It will either say you are guilty of violating what you know to be right, or you are exonerated in your behavior against the standard that you possess. And so it is this internal mechanism that evaluates human behavior, accusing us or excusing us, affirming us in our behavior or denouncing us in our behavior, as the case may be. And so the conscience, we understand, is a divinely created part of man's unique nature. We don't know any other being created by God that possesses this conscience. We don't find any evidence that the animals that inhabit this world, as marvelous as they are, have anything like a moral compass, that have a conscience which is able to evaluate their behavior and to pass judgment upon whether it is right or wrong. That is the unique possession of man. The conscience is not exactly the same as the voice of God, though it reflects the truth that God has given, but it's not the voice of God speaking to us. God speaks to us where? In the Bible. The Bible is the voice of God to us. Nor is our conscience the law of God. That's something separate. We do have the law of God both in the Bible and in some dim reflection, even within our mind, within our heart, And the conscience is aware of that and makes its judgments according to the law of God that it understands. But the conscience is something separate from the law of God. It is something which evaluates our conduct against the standard of the law of God and then evaluates whether it measures up to the law of God or fails to do so. The conscience rules according to the highest standard that it understands. The conscience of man rules on our behavior according 
to the highest standard that it knows. And it often rules erroneously. Take one text in 1 John 3.20, where John says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now, the word conscience isn't used there, but the idea is there. In that particular text, John says there are times when our heart, that is our conscience, will condemn us erroneously. It will accuse us of guilt when it ought not, but God is greater than our heart. God's greater than our conscience. God can overrule that conscience, which is operating defectively. But the conscience often rules erroneously. Why? Because of the fall. Adam, before the fall, had a perfectly operating conscience. But when Adam fell... He was damaged in the fall. Every part of man's being has been significantly damaged by sin in the fall. And that would include man's conscience, which no longer operates perfectly or anything close to perfectly because of the fall, because of sin, and not only because of that original sin in the Garden of Eden, but because of the sins that we add to it. And our own sin also serves to damage our conscience and to cause it to act erroneously many times. And so because of sin and the fall, our minds do not have a perfect understanding of God's word, God's law, God's will. And that renders our conscience less than perfect And because of sin and the fall, our wills are not set on always obeying the word of God. We are not like the Lord Jesus Christ, committed to perfectly obeying the Father's will and everything. Sin pulls us in other directions, and that causes our conscience not to function properly at all times. However, even when our conscience is not acting perfectly, it is dangerous to ignore it because that will cause it to even be further damaged. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 14 and verse 14. He said, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. What's that? That's an imperfect conscience operating according to an imperfect standard. He's dealing with the question of dietary laws. And Paul said, I know, that's understanding, that's truth, that's the revelation of God that has informed his mind. He says, I know that there's nothing unclean of itself when it comes to what you eat, what you put into your mouth. He said, I understand that I can eat anything and it does not displease God. He said, I can eat anything with a perfectly clear conscience, but there are some people who can't because their conscience is is, uh, making determinations based upon a less than perfect understanding of God's will. They have a faulty understanding of the word of God. And their conscience bothers them when they eat certain things, not because it really is wrong, before God, 
but because they mistakenly think it's wrong, and until their conscience has been better informed, until their mind is better informed, and then their conscience catches up with their better understanding, their conscience is going to bother them whenever they do that, even though those with better understanding know that what they're doing is not sin. And then he goes on to say in verse 20, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Happy is the man whose understanding matches up to the word of God and his conscience operates properly according to that understanding. Happy is the man who's, who's not condemned in what he approves. But if your conscience does bother you, if you say, well, I think it's okay to do that, your conscience is smitten when you do that, then Paul says don't do it. And if you know that something is okay to do, but your brother thinks it's wrong, don't do it in his presence. Why? Because you will damage, you will weaken his conscience, and that's not good. His conscience needs to be informed, but it doesn't need to be violated. It's not safe to disobey your conscience, even if it's not operating perfectly, because you damage it further. You don't want to do that. But by the nature of things, our conscience must be instructed. It must be calibrated and recalibrated continually throughout our lifetime. We have to continually take our understanding to the Word of God to inform our understanding, and then we take our conscience to our new understanding so that it can now judge according to its understanding because the conscience passes judgment according to its highest understanding of right and wrong. The highest standard that it knows, it's going to judge according to that, but that highest standard is not always a perfect standard. But the more of God's word that informs our mind, the better is our standard, the closer it comes to a perfect standard, and the more our conscience is able to operate correctly. But it's always dangerous to ignore your conscience, and it's even more dangerous to violate your conscience. Paul said this of some in 1 Timothy 1.19, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Some have wrecked their lives as far as their relationship with God is concerned, as far as the Christian faith is concerned. They've wrecked their lives. Why? Because they went against the truth. They went against their conscience. And they kept doing that until they shipwrecked their soul. Very dangerous thing. He said this in 1 Timothy 4.2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. We know that if you took a hot iron and 
pressed it upon the flesh of your finger, that you would destroy the nerves and they would no longer be able to feel. They could not inform you as to the danger of something that was hot enough to hurt you. You would have seared your nerve endings and destroyed them. And we can do the same thing with our conscience. We can, we can so, so sear our conscience by continually violating it that it no longer operates. It just becomes dead. Now, the difference between our finger and our conscience is that God the Holy Spirit is able to quicken to life that which is dead, including a dead conscience. It's not hopeless, but it's hopeless as far as what we can do to revive it. The only hope is found in God's power. So it's very dangerous to violate our conscience. And so the conscience must be prepared to operate properly. It is prepared, first of all, by the work of regeneration. You must be born again. And that's not a command, that's a statement of fact to, to make us understand our need so that we can call out to the only one who is able to birth us, to create life. You must be born again as a statement of fact. It's not a command, birth yourself again. <laughs> that's the way it's often preached. But it's a fact. We, we have to to be born again by the Spirit of God, and we need to understand that fact so that we know our need and can go to the one, the only one, who is able to create life, to birth us into spiritual life. And so our conscience must be prepared, first of all, by regeneration, and secondly, by the Word of God. And the more you understand God's Word, the better your conscience will function. The more you... Uh, apply God's word to your life, the better your conscience will function. Your conscience is prepared to function properly by regeneration, by the word of God, and number three, by exercise. As we take the word of God, which we know, and apply it to our lives, that's exercising our conscience along with other things, and that's how our conscience becomes sharper, becomes clearer, becomes stronger, becomes better informed, becomes more accurate, becomes calibrated correctly. We talk about how important it is to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Well, this is part of the reason why. It violates our conscience to hear truth and do nothing about it. It violates our conscience to know something is true, but refuse to put it into action in our lives. Refuse to apply it. That's, that's more than just displeasing to the Lord, but it actually does damage to our soul because it damages our conscience. And so it's important that our conscience be performing. Our conscience is what gives us integrity before God. And that's why it is important to continually and regularly hear the word of God. That's why it's important that we should allow God's Word to regularly correct our wrong thinking, unbiblical thinking, which we have. From our Adamic sinfulness, we have wrong thinking, and we pick up a lot of wrong notions. They arise from our own heart, and we imbibe them from from people around us and the culture in which we live, and we live in a fallen world. And so our thinking is regularly wrong, and it's only the Word of God that can correct it. We, we have to be renewed by our minds, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul said in Romans chapter 
12. And so we should always be hearing and studying the Word of God with the idea that I have wrong thoughts that need to be corrected. I don't know, in many cases, I don't know what they are. But this is why I study the Word of God, so I can understand what they are. And when I do understand what they are, I've got to change. I start by a change in thinking. I think this, the Bible says this, I've got to change my thinking. I've got to line up my understanding with what the Bible says. And so I need to hear God's word to correct unbiblical thinking and to acknowledge sinful behavior and to confess sin promptly. Very important. And we continue to acknowledge and confess sin whenever our conscience convicts us of sin. Because if you don't, you will damage your conscience and it will fail you to trouble you when you need it. Some say, well, I don't want a conscience bothering me. I want to be able to do what I want to do without my conscience bothering me. You'll wish when you stand before God someday that your conscience bothered you and that you obeyed it. Your conscience is your friend given to you by God to help you know what God's demands are. And to please the Lord before whom you must stand someday to give an account. Your conscience is your friend. You need to cultivate it. You need to encourage it. You don't want to violate it. You don't want to damage it. And that's one reason why it's important that we have daily Bible reading and prayer. Prayer is is taking the word of God that we have heard and applying it to our personal everyday situations and and that recalibration often takes place in the place of prayer on our knees before the Lord or however you pray I'm not I'm just using that symbolically but as we as we as we wait before the Lord and think about the circumstances of our lives the needs the concerns that we are taking to the Lord in prayer what are we doing We are thinking about these things, we ought to be, actively thinking about these things in the light of God's Word as we understand God's Word. And then we begin to to mesh together, you might say, the needs, the concerns, the prayer requests into conformity with the revealed will of God. And that's calibrating our thinking, that's calibrating our conscience. It goes without saying that faithful church attendance and involvement is very important to a good conscience. That is a church where the word of God is faithfully proclaimed. You can go to some churches, I hate to say it, but it's true, you can go to some churches that will actually encourage you to violate your conscience, that will encourage you to think that right is wrong and wrong is right. will encourage you in wrongdoing, wrong thinking, wrong behavior. Well, that salves your conscience if you don't want to do what's right. The church agrees with this. The preacher agrees with this. It can't be wrong. But if you want a good conscience, you need to be under a sound ministry that preaches God's word without compromise, without shaping it. It's good to have our toes stepped on in church. We need that for our conscience to be strengthened 
recalibrated. And faithful observance at the Lord's table is also important to this process of having a good conscience. The Lord's table is designed, among other things, to be a time of self-examination, and it's a powerful time of self-examination. God has has appointed it for that purpose, God has ordained it for that purpose, and God will use it for that purpose. And there will be some more powerful searchings of heart and more powerful conviction of sin and more, more promptings to confess, to understand and confess our sin in the observance of the Lord's table than perhaps at other times, according to the design of God. And so when God's people absent themselves from the Lord's table month after month and year after year, they are actually damaging, or dulling at least, their own conscience. They are neglecting a tool which God has given to sharpen the conscience. That's not a good idea. That's not wise. Not only is it disobeying what the Lord told us, but it's also doing damage to our souls. talking about developing spiritual courage. How do we develop courage in the face of suffering? Well, the the thing we have to begin with here is a strong conscience, a good conscience, so that no matter what happens to us, we we can lift our hearts to God with integrity and say, as far as I know, I am not sinning, I am not displeasing God, And therefore, whatever suffering comes my way, I can take it as long as I have the sense that everything's all right between me and God. That gives us courage. The second step is to embrace God's promise of final victory. That takes us to the last part of verse 16. Verse 16 says, Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers... Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Peter apparently expects slanderous accusations to come. When they defame you as evildoers, not if, but when. Now, is that a contradiction? Does Peter expect this of all Christians? Or is he saying when persecution comes that as it will to some people, then this is one of the outcomes? Well, I I rather think it's the first one, that Peter does expect some level of persecution to come to all Christians, namely verbal abuse. It's the more serious kinds of persecution, the physical abuse, that is not God's appointment for all of his children. So there's kind of a combining together of these ideas here. and That might at first seem to be a bit confusing, but surely any Christian who is living a conspicuous Christian life in a world that is no friend of grace to help us on to God is going to suffer some verbal persecution from time to time. It's going to come, not if it comes, but when it comes. But he says, when it comes, that those who defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ, may be ashamed. If your conduct is good because you are maintaining a good conscience, which is another way of saying you are maintaining righteous conduct before God, the best you understand His will, and if your conduct is good 
when they revile you, when they slander you in this way, then you can be sure, you can be sure that the time is coming when they, not you, will be ashamed. Now, he doesn't tell us when that day will be. In some cases, it may be before the judgment bar of God. But we can be sure that that day is coming. Remember what he told us back in chapter 2 and verse 15? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Similar idea. By doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of... A foolish men. That speaks of the here and now. What Peter is telling us in verse 16 can speak of the here and now or can speak of the hereafter, but it is an assurance that the day will come that those who slander you, those who lie about you, those who maliciously spread falsehoods about you because you are a Christian, that the day will come when their slander will be exposed as lies and they will be ashamed and you will be standing strong. However, I think there's more involved in this than what I have already said, and all of that is true, that the day will come if you are living for Christ when evildoers who revile your good conduct in Christ will be ashamed But I think we are overlooking the fact that this idea of being ashamed in its Jewish context, and Peter certainly was a Jew, as we know, and from the Hebrew and Old Testament context really means something more like defeat. The time is coming when your enemies will be defeated. When we read, for example, in Romans 10, 11, whosoever believes on him will not be ashamed, and that's quoting Isaiah 28, 16, it means more than just Feel bad. (laughs) Whoever believes in him will not feel shame, will not be ashamed. It has the idea of, of being defeated or disgraced in battle. Whoever believes on him will not be disgraced in battle. Whoever believes on him will be seen to be victorious in the end. Whoever believes on him has chosen the right side of the spiritual battle. And no matter how it may seem to go upon earth, and there are many, many uh, uh, back and forth conflicts, and many times it looks like the enemy is winning and the people of God are losing. But you need to be sure of this, that whoever believes on him is going to come out victorious in the end. It is not so much an emotion of embarrassment or guilt that Peter has in mind here when he talks about being ashamed. We tend to think of most everything in emotional terms, and we think of of shame and embarrassment as being something emotional. But it means not shamed in the end. We'll be standing victorious, and our opponents will be defeated. And to be defeated in Jewish thinking is to be shamed. Most translations, like the one I have before me, leaves, it, leaves a statement standing so that we can eventually arrive at this understanding that I'm suggesting you as we study the Scriptures and, and particularly the Old Testament statements that use this concept, and we realize that's exactly how it's used in the Old Testament. The NIV, however, 
adds its own thoughts, and it says something like, um, whoever, whoever reviles your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And it takes the liberty of adding those words to explain what the shame is in their understanding and estimation. And by doing that, I think it tends to mislead and obscure us to discovering the deeper meaning of what this is all about. What he's talking about is an unshaken assurance of final decisive victory. Whoever believes in him can be absolutely sure of final victory. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. That is, they are going to be defeated. They are going to go down to destruction. They are going to be condemned. They are going to be consumed. They are going to to wish a million times over that they have chosen your route instead of their route. Now, don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever lose sight of that. Don't you ever forget that those who follow Jesus Christ are victorious and will be victorious in the end, and you hold on to that because that will give you courage in the day of suffering. This is only a temporary skirmish. Those who are in Christ will conquer at last. I know it. I'm sure of it. That will develop spiritual courage if you keep that before you. And then the third thing is to submit fully to God's sovereign rule. And that's verse 17. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Now, this evidently is a common saying. It's something of a summary of what he said before. And it tells us that we should be prepared for the very real possibility of suffering. Certainly, we'll all experience some kind of verbal abuse. And some of God's children will be appointed to more serious physical abuse and some even to death and martyrdom. But be sure that whatever suffering comes your way, be sure that you have a clean conscience, a good conscience that, that assures you that it did not come because of your misbehavior. This is not God's chastening for your sins. You have a good conscience before God that your behavior, not perfect, none of us have perfect behavior, but your behavior has been Basically good and righteous. And therefore, you recognize that this suffering is not coming for your own orneriness sake. It's coming for Christ's sake. That's important, isn't it? So this is a common saying that apparently was quoted by the people of God. And what it's telling us is that though suffering is never pleasant and we wouldn't embrace it unnecessarily, that suffering for sin, suffering for wrong, doesn't have nearly the value as suffering for what is good. It is better. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There's a comparison here. One is better than the other. One's a lot better than the other. Now, it's true that even suffering for doing wrong can have some beneficial purpose. It can remind us of the liability of sin. We did wrong. We suffer for it. It's good to have that kind of cause-effect reminder. 
and the quicker, the sooner, the better. It therefore discourages us to continue pursuing sin. It's a mercy of God when he causes our sins to have consequences. Sharp, rapid consequences. It's good to get caught, young people. It's good to get caught. Do you young people ever have the sense that my friends can get away with things and they don't get caught? Every time I do it, I get caught. What's wrong? That's not fair. You thank God that every time you do it, you get caught. That's God's goodness. That's God's mercy. That's God's reminder of the liability of sin. That's God's hedge around you to keep you from pursuing sin. That's God's grace operating in your life. That's good. But there's no noble purpose to advance Christ's kingdom when we sin for our own wrongdoing. I mean, when we suffer for our own wrongdoing. That doesn't advance the cause of Christ in any way. It benefits us personally and, and helps us to, to turn from our sin. But it doesn't, it doesn't honor the Lord. It doesn't advance the cause of Christ's kingdom in the world. But suffering for good has that very purpose. In addition to some personal purposes, which I won't get into now, what Peter tells us is that suffering for doing good beneficially impacts the souls of others. It renders our testimony much more powerful. When we suffer not having done any wrong, there are some people that the Spirit of God is going to make aware of that, and they are going to be powerfully impacted that there is reality to our claim to know the Lord. And if it has that purpose, if your suffering for righteousness' sake is used by God to save sinners, isn't that good? Isn't that worth it? Won't won't it be worth it all when we see Jesus? What's a little bit of suffering now for the eternity of glory that is hereafter? If a little bit of unjust suffering in your life and you bear it patiently and in a godly way is used by God to save your children, to save your grandchildren, to save your friends and neighbors and relatives, won't you gladly undertake that? Well, what if it's used to save someone that you don't know? But isn't that still good? Won't you acknowledge God's goodness in that? Won't you trust Him? Won't you leave the verdict to Him? Won't you say, God, I know you're wise. I know you're good. I know you won't bring anything into the life of your child that's not for my good and for your glory. And I'll trust you. I'll submit to your will. And Peter throws that in there, doesn't he? It is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It is better if it is the will of God. And the point is this. If it happens, it is God's will. How do you know if it's God's will? If it happens, it is. Now, surely you believe that. You believe in a sovereign God. You believe that whatever comes into our lives, God has appointed. And that's a wonderful encouragement. It's not blind chance that brought this into my life. It's the will of my Heavenly Father. I may not understand it, but I can be certain of this. God willed it. God planned it. God designed it. It's not the will of my adversary that has brought this suffering. Of course, it is his will. He would have done a whole lot more of it if he could. For up to my adversaries, every child of God 
which, which suffer endlessly. It's the sovereign power and mercy of God that withholds so much of the suffering that is the will of our adversary. They can't carry out their will except when their will coincides with God's will. When their will coincides with God's will, then their will to cause us to suffer happens. And if it happens, it's God's will. And if it's God's will, it's good, even if I don't understand it. And then, therefore, I have to submit to that. Martin Luther had something wise to say about suffering. He said, go on in faith and love. If the cross comes, take it. If it comes not, do not seek it. Go on in faith and love. If the cross comes, take it. If it does not come, do not seek it. Don't go out looking for trouble. Don't look for martyrdom. Don't look for suffering. Don't look for persecution. Don't have a persecution complex. But if it comes, take it as the will of your heavenly Father and bear up under it as a child of God. In other words, accept whatever happens as God's perfect will. Accept whatever happens as God's perfect will. Are you listening to me? It's easier said than done, isn't it? That's that disconnect between what we know intellectually about God and his sovereignty and what we apply to our lives personally. But that's the whole point. We've got to, we've got to bring together what we know and how we act, how we behave, what we really believe, what we really apply to our lives. We've got to bring theory and practice together. We've got to bring our, our knowledge about who God is and our submission to his sovereignty together in our lives so that whatever happens in our lives, we bow in his presence and we gladly accept that as his will. Because it is. Some teach that because Jesus suffered, I don't have to suffer. That's wrong. I don't suffer eternally. I don't suffer condemnation. I don't suffer the wrath of God. Thank God. If I... If I am in Christ, then my substitute takes all that suffering, and I will never experience that. But those who are not in Christ must experience it for themselves. But that doesn't mean that it's not God's will to suffer. The Bible continually tells us over and over again that it is his will for his children to suffer. Yes, God willed for Jesus to suffer, and God wills for all of his children to suffer. Because God had a wise purpose in Christ's sufferings, we know that, but God has a wise purpose in our sufferings. Do we know that? Do we believe that? Not the same purpose. We can't suffer as atonement for our sins. We can't suffer vicariously as atonement for anybody else's sins, but we can suffer in a way that does benefit others. And God has wise and gracious purposes in that. And so when we understand these truths and embrace them, it will greatly strengthen our spiritual courage. Three steps to develop spiritual courage. Number one, maintain a good conscience. Right? Number two, embrace God's promise of final victory 
Don't ever forget that. And then, number three, submit fully to God's sovereign rule. And if you will keep those things continually before you, you will have the courage to serve God as a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ, no matter what comes. May God help us. Let us pray. We don't enjoy suffering, O Lord. You know that. You made us. You understand us. And we spend a lot of our life trying to avoid suffering at any cost. Forgive us, Lord, for that. Even as we look at the elections coming up in our nation, many of your people are filled with fear about what may happen and what suffering may be ahead if things don't go the way that they would plan. And some are almost frantic to try to avoid suffering at any cost. Lord, help us to understand that whatever happens on Tuesday is your will, your good will, your beneficial will, certainly beneficial for all your people, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the advancement of Christ's kingdom, however it turns out, however it turns out. We can know it is your will. Help us, Lord, to apply these truths to our lives in every area and to develop the kind of spiritual courage that will not be afraid, that will not run from adversity, that will not back down in the face of adversaries, that will stand strong and true for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who receives and deserves all the honor and glory that we can give to him and in whose name we pray. Amen.